Those final three and a half years of the tribulation, Jesus says, will be the worst time in the world's history. It will be the worst three and a half years in human history because of what God will do. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. If God is a God of love, why is there evil in the world? And if evil exists, does that mean God is to blame for the events that unfold? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part 11 of his 14-part series titled The Future According to Jesus, exploring what our Lord had to say about the end times and His eventual return. Think about the end of all the future world events that precede the return of Jesus Christ. Global war, disease, and famine, all affecting whole continents with terrible pain and suffering. Well, in today's lesson, Tom continues looking at the seven-year Great Tribulation, and in particular, the final and horrible three and a half years when God's holy wrath is poured out upon the world. The questions remain, is God holy, just, and good? Must sin and evil be punished so? And should you fear God's coming wrath? Keep that in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. We've already discussed the period around 70 AD and all that was happening to the Jews at that time. Another exceptionally difficult time in history was the 14th century. The Black Death was racing across Europe. In fact, it peaked in the years 1348 to 1350. It was one of the most devastating pandemics in human history. Historians estimate that it killed 30 to 60 percent of Europe's population. It reduced the entire world's population by somewhere between 75 and 100 million people. At that point, almost a fourth of the world's population. In modern times, the times of greatest distress have to be the times of the world wars in the last century. We don't think a lot about those times, those of us who didn't go through them, those, of course, who did, and there's some even here tonight who did, they understand this more personally than we do. But in World War I, in five years' time, more than nine million people were killed in combat. Nine million. In the last year of World War I, 1918, the final year of the war, another 50 to 100 million died in the great influenza epidemic at the end of that war. World War II, in six years' time, 50 to 70 million casualties, making it the deadliest war in human history. Those were dark, difficult times. But as bad as those times were, and they were, Jesus says a worse time is coming. In Mark 13, Verse 19, he says, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now, 
and never will. That's a staggering comment by the Lord of history, the one who understands all times and all that's transpired and all that would transpire. In that verse, Jesus is describing the second three and a half years of a future seven-year period that the Bible calls the tribulation. The second three and a half years of that seven-year period is called the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is initiated by an event that in verse 14 of Mark 13 is called the Abomination of Desolation. That event comes at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. Now, I know for some of you, all of these are new ideas. And for others of you, they're dusty, and you're sort of dusting them off in your mind. So I prepared a chart that, that I hope will help you sort of put it all in perspective. It's just a simple little chart here. But we're talking about the seven years that mark the tribulation. They are Daniel's 70th week. That is, the 70th week of seven years that we saw back in Daniel chapter 9 Verses 24 to 27. That's the seven years we're talking about. The rapture occurs sometime before this seven-year period initiates. There may be a gap between the rapture and the tribulation period of a short time. We don't know. We're not really told. Nowhere is the rapture immediately connected to the beginning of the tribulation period. We are told, however, what does initiate the seven-year period. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the day of the Lord cannot come until the man of sin is revealed. This world leader of incredible power and incredible evil, the Antichrist, he will be revealed and he will initiate a covenant with the people of God, according to Daniel chapter 9. That initiates this seven-year period. Now, the first three and a half years of this period of time overlaps, if you want to overlap and see what happens during that time, it's the first five seals in the book of Revelation. You can read those and understand them. Here in Mark, in the sermon on the Olivet, the Olivet Discourse, it's... Mark 13, verses 5 to 13, called the beginning of birth pangs. That is what is happening, is transpiring during the first three and a half years of this seven-year period. Now, we mark it at its half time, at its midpoint, because we're told to do so. You remember in Daniel chapter 9, we were told that at the middle of the seven-year period, at the three-and-a-half-year point, the man of sin, this world leader, will break the covenant that he made. And he will do something that Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. That is in Mark chapter 13, verse 14. So you see how Mark lays out over this seven-year period. The second half of the seven-year tribulation is called the great tribulation because the intensity of all that's transpiring really gathers significantly. During this second three and a half years, seals six and seven from the book of Revelation occur, 
the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments. If the first half of this seven-year period is called the beginning of birth pangs, the second half is hard labor. And it comes to its culmination at the end of the seven-year period with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that is in Mark chapter 13 as well, beginning in verse 24 to 27. And so you see how Mark overlays with Daniel's 70th week and with Revelation as well to some extent. All right, so I hope that that gives you at least a general mental picture. Seven years, divided at three and a half years. The seven year begins with the man of sin being revealed, 2 Thessalonians 2, making a covenant with Israel. And in the middle of that seven year period, he breaks that covenant and he does something called the abomination of desolation and that ushers in the second half of this terrible period of time culminated by the second coming. Now it is that second half from the midpoint to the end of the seven year period that Jesus is discussing in the passage we're looking at in Mark 13. Again, just to give you an overview of the passage in, in Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse, here's how it organizes. In verses 5 to 13, you have the beginning of birth pangs. That's from Christ's ascension to the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. Throughout human history, those things occur that are described there, earthquakes, natural disasters, etc., but they come to their real intensity They're Braxton Hicks, if you will, contractions throughout history. But during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, they are the beginning of the real birth pangs. Then you have in verses 14 to 23, the great tribulation. That describes the time from the midpoint of the tribulation to the end. In verses 24 to 27, the second coming, and then he ends in verses 28 to 37 with an exhortation to those who are listening to him. So, so far we have studied this, the beginning of birth pangs, verses 5 to 13. Those birth pangs include false Christs, prophets and predictions, war, natural disasters, intense persecution, and the gospel going global and reaching all the nations on earth. That's what will happen from the ascension of Christ throughout history, but all of those things will occur in more intense fashion in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. We begin our study of the second part of this sermon, the great tribulation from verses 14 to 23. Again, these verses describe the final three and a half years. Keep that in mind as we read them together. You follow along. Mark 13, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down nor go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. 
Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is here, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Those final three and a half years of the tribulation, Jesus says, will be the worst time in the world's history. Not primarily because of what God's enemies will do, although that will be bad. And not because of what the Antichrist will do, although that too will be horrific. It will be the worst three and a half years in human history because of what God will do. So let's look at what Jesus says will transpire during that final three and a half years of the future seven-year tribulation. The beginning of the birth pains is over. And now hard labor begins. So what about this second part of the tribulation? Let's look first of all at how it's initiated. It is initiated by the abomination of desolation. Verse 14 says, When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Matthew tells us that whatever this abomination of desolation is, it is standing in the holy place in the temple. And it's what was prophesied by Daniel. Those are two very important pieces of information that Matthew gives us. Now the phrase, the abomination of desolation, occurs three times in Daniel. He says it was what Daniel prophesied. Three times that phrase occurs in Daniel. In the passage we looked at, Daniel 9.27, which is describing this period of time, in chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. Now, Daniel 11.31 is very helpful because Daniel 11.31 describes something that's called an abomination of desolation, but that had already transpired by the time of Christ. If you study the context of Daniel 11, if you have a good study Bible, you check it out, you will discover and conclude that the phrase is used there of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes lived in the second century before Christ. In 163 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes polluted the altar in Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig on it. And then he forced the priest to eat the meat from that pig. And then he placed on the altar of burnt offering a statue, an image of Zeus, and commanded that it be worshipped, one of the Greek gods. Now, that's what the abomination of desolation was in chapter 11, verse 31. We know that. So that helps us understand the others. It's obvious that Daniel 9.27 is not talking about what Antiochus did because Christ said in his time it was still future. 
But whatever this future pagan leader will do must be like what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 163 B.C. He will do something in the holy place of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem that will be utterly disgusting and repulsive to God and to his people. Now, you can find out a little bit about what those things are in these texts. We've already looked at Daniel 9. There we're told that he causes the sacrifice to cease in connection with this abomination of desolation. In chapter 12, the same thing is said in Daniel 12. But I want you to turn to 2 Thessalonians, because here the picture becomes a little clearer of what this abomination of desolation is. This thing that, that is abhorrent to God that ruins the temple. That's the idea of the abomination of desolation. It is abominable to God, and it ruins, it desolates the place of worship of the true God. Now look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you. For the day of the Lord, that's what he's talking about, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering to him, the day of the Lord has not come. You've been told that. You've been shaken from your composure, disturbed by a message you received, maybe a letter that purported to be from Paul, to the effect that the day of the Lord has not come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. Here's what initiates that period. Unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, what is this future man going to do? Verse 4, he will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now you see how the same phrase, abomination of desolation, could be used of Antiochus in 163 B.C. because of what he did in desecrating the temple and having a false god be worshipped. And what this man will do in the future. It's like in kind. That's the abomination of desolation. So then a future world leader who is called the man of lawlessness or the man of sin in some translations, called the Antichrist in Revelation, will at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week make a seven-year covenant with the nation Israel. At the midpoint of that seven-year period, he will break that covenant and will cause the sacrifices at the rebuilt temple to cease. And he will apparently erect an image of himself and call for worldwide worship. Now, when this man first appears as a world leader, the seven-year tribulation begins. Paul says the day of the Lord, that period when God unleashes his fury, cannot begin until the man of lawlessness is revealed. When at three and a half years he breaks his covenant and he desecrates the temple in Jerusalem, the great tribulation begins. Now, before we leave this first point, let me settle an important question. How do we know that the events described in Mark 13, verses 14 and following, happen at the end of history? There are those who say, no, this this happened earlier. This happened in 70 AD. This happened in other times. How do we know 
that it happens at the end of history. Well, there's several ways, but let me show you one. Look at verse 26. Then, this is back in Mark 13, verse 26. After all these things happen, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Matthew is even clearer. Listen to Matthew. Here's Matthew 24, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, probably a reference to to meteors, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of earth will mourn, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, we're talking about the end. All right, so the great tribulation will be initiated by the abomination of desolation, by a future world leader who stops the sacrifices at a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and who erects, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, an image of himself to be worshipped. There's another thing Jesus tells us about those final three and a half years. He says they will be marked by the persecution of Israel. In fact, this period of time is referred to by Jeremiah as the time of Jacob's distress. Here's Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, or as some translations have it, the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it in the end. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Jesus tells those who are his followers in Israel at that time, run. Run for your life. Run for the mountains and run immediately. Don't pause. Don't hesitate in any way. In fact, look at verse 15. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. In ancient times, and even some places today in the Middle East, homes were built with flat roofs. Most of the year, that area served as a a cool late afternoon outdoor room. You had a little fence or some sort of wall around it, and it was a wonderful place for your family to go. Usually it was accessed by an outdoor set of stairs up the outside wall of the home that led up to this rooftop. It was used for meals. That's where Peter was sleeping, you remember, when he had the vision in Acts 10. It was used for prayer times, for naps, for relaxation. It was used for a variety of things. It was like an outdoor room. Uh, They were ahead of their times, right? Typically, as I said, there were stairs on the outside wall of the home that led up to this rooftop room. Jesus says, if you're alive when the man of sin breaks his covenant, when he sets up the abomination of desolation in the temple, and you're on your rooftop, when you hear the news, run down your stairs and don't even think about taking time to go into your house and gather a few belongings. Just run. Verse 16 And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Again, this would have been a common image in an agricultural society. If you worked your own fields or if you worked for another, 
In the morning, as you got up, when the, because it's very low humidity, much like Southern California, you go out in the morning and the air is cool, even during the summer, and so you would have worn your cloak, your outer cloak, as the day began. But as the sun came up and as the, the heat of the day increased, you would have taken that outer coat and you would have laid it down somewhere on one corner of a field and continued your work. Jesus says, if you hear the news of the abomination of desolation while you're working in the field, don't even go back across the field to collect your coat. Even though you might wish you had it that night, you better run. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 11 of his series, The Future According to Jesus. Tom will have part 12 for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.